there's something about hiking and being in the mountains and setting a goal um, and the simplicity of like just putting one foot in front of the other and then reaching a peak and working really hard to get there there's something very human about it that really appeals to me Welcome to the Ultimate Challenge podcast, where I, your host, Anna Ashbury, speak to the people who push themselves to their absolute max. But who are these people? Why do they do it? Who inspires them to take on these challenges? The man you heard at the start of this podcast, that was Andy. Andy has solo climbed to Everest Base Camp, but this wasn't the first mountain that he had climbed. Because I did Kilimanjaro sort of four years ago. For me, that was a really big deal. I was 21 and... It was such a like wild thing, Kilimanjaro. It was like, oh, that big mountain they climbed on Comic Relief. And it didn't seem like something that just an everyday person could just go and do. And I didn't realise that it is actually possible if you've got the time and the, the determination to do it. If you book the flight out there, you can actually do sure. Kilimanjaro. Yeah. And it's, you know, it is hard, but it's possible. So after that, it was kind of a sense of what's next. And yeah, to me... Everest Base Camp was just the kind of thing that was asking me to do it. It was the next big iconic thing that I could think of that was along the same line of Kilimanjaro where it would test me and push me and require me to kind of like, yeah, test myself. So before Andy took on the challenge four years ago of climbing Kilimanjaro, previously he'd only climbed a few peaks around Snowdonia in Wales. When he climbed Kilimanjaro, it was with a group of people. So I wanted to know, when he climbed Everest Base Camp, why did he do it alone? I guess by removing the guide, by removing porters, by removing any sort of aid in the, in, in the hike, then everything came down to me and my ability to plan it, my ability to do it. I think it was just I really wanted a solid sense of like independence on the hike. Like Kilimanjaro was great and it, it was very challenging, but it is a very much your, you know, you're in a group with a series of guides, a series of porters. The porters are amazing and they do everything for you. Uh, you know, they cook your foods, they carry your stuff. They set, they're, they're incredible human beings, but I felt just too privileged. It's like I'm hiking this mountain and there's, you know, there's someone who's carrying, like, not just my stuff, but probably two other people's stuff on top of my stuff. And then, you know, I'm there moaning about the cold and things like that. And there, there were times where it, it was really like, you know, what would happen if these people weren't here, if the, if the porters weren't here and the guides weren't here? It would be a completely different hike. Yeah, so when it came to Everest Base Camp, I, I, I thought the idea, it would be great to do it alone, to give me that solid sense of independence and to really, truly test myself because it is literally down to me then, you know, if something goes wrong, it's up to me to sort it out. It's up to me to plan it. It's up to me to make sure I've got the right equipment. And it's up to me to get myself to the peak because there's no one that's going to carry me or spur me on or push me or, or any of that. It's literally down to me and my um, determination. So, yeah, I really want that sense of independence. And, yeah, it just links back to testing myself. I really want to test myself but you know I, I did do a lot of research on if it's possible how dangerous is it um, what are the risks of hiking alone and I wouldn't have done it if I didn't think I had it in me to do it yeah and it was monsoon season as well which wasn't ideal but it was the only time I had free to do it and if I didn't do it in this time slot I don't know when the next slot of time would have would, would come up 
so that was another thing I had to weigh out as well, as well as being alone. Is it safe in monsoon? You know, what are the risks um, and all that stuff. Andy allowed himself just three weeks to do the climb. On the day he landed in Kathmandu, he only gave himself a few hours to get all the gear he needed. And the next morning, he was on his way to the start point. However, Andy started his climb to Everest Base Camp a little bit differently. People will go from Kathmandu and then they'll go to the airport and then they'll fly into Lukla, yeah. uh, which is the highest airport in the world. But you're already about 3,000 metres up at that point. It, it, you know, you're coming in very high. And I wanted a more kind of natural hike, so I did some research and I found the actual original, before the airport was built, where people would hike in from. It's this little uh, place called Jiri, which is about an eight-hour bus ride from Kathmandu. So, whereas most people that do Everest Base Camp do, they fly into Lukla, I got the bus to this place, Jiri, which adds an extra seven days onto the hike. And, and ironically, the bit that I added to the hike was the hardest, because you have to hike a lot, because it's, it's a lot, you're at a much lower altitude much of the time. So you can hike a lot longer per day. Whereas the higher up you get, you need to kind of reduce the hike time. So the first seven days, I was hiking like 10 hours a day, non-stop, but stopping for lunch, etc. And it was monsoon, so it was just rain all the time, cold, wet, and really up and down. You climb really high and then go low and then hike really high again. And yeah, that decision to do that extra seven days was actually ironically the hardest part, the first seven. Not only were these first seven days the hardest for hiking, Andy was also struggling with something else, the weight of his backpack. This was a shock to him after having used porters on his last mountain climb challenge to the peak of Kilimanjaro. For this climb, he had to carry everything he needed in just one backpack for 10 hours, each and every day. I definitely thought about the weight and I was very careful with what I took, but until you're there and you're actually doing the hike, it's very hard to think of how much that sort of thing can actually affect you. So I just remember stopping a lot to begin with, like, oh my god, I, I just wanted to I just wanted to keep going, keep moving, but my shoulders were aching. Uh, so I actually did ditch quite a lot of weight. I just left some stuff in uh, um, in Jiri. I gave someone a GoPro pole because it took up so much weight. So I was like, have this, you can sell it or have it, whatever. And uh, a few of my clothes as well I got rid of. Although Andy wasn't too prepared when it came to the weight of his backpack, he did take his pre-departure preparations very seriously when it came to mountain safety. He did a lot of research. He built up his fitness in the gym and then he did even more research. He wanted to know everything from what to eat, from what not to eat, to the weather, to planning the route. The whole map system up there is pretty cool because they have maps for, because it's, you know, that the Everest region is so saturated with tourists then there's maps for pretty much any route you want to do. So Jiri to Everest, there's a map that does that exact route and it's zoomed in on that route. So yeah, I had a map and I did use it to be fair, especially in the Jiri, the, the first seven days, because once I joined up the kind of main Everest trail, everything was a lot more clearer of you. This is the way you go and there's a sign to go that way. But prior to that, it wasn't, because not as many people do this route, because people just fly in. It wasn't as easy to find the way there would be a sign every like four hours and it would point in one direction. And I did, there were times where I realised I was going the wrong way slightly. Um, and so, yeah, sometimes it was very hard. There was one section where there was, because it was monsoon, you know, landslides were a big worry. 
and there'd clearly been quite a big landslide like moments before I got there because there was still stuff falling down and I would, that was my route that was the way I needed to go and I didn't want to risk it being on my own going like directly across the landslide so I detoured a bit or tried to and then realised that I was lost so then I backtracked and came back to the landslide bit which at that point there was literally no movement from anything so then I just walked through it because it was a really big section of huge chunks you could see it just literally just tumbled down so yeah there were, you know there were moments like that but I think yeah just that just to have that map in your backpack is very important Monsoon season is off-peak season, and so there are no Everest tours available. Everest Base Camp is completely empty, and there are hardly any tourists trying to complete the challenging hike. This is the complete opposite to when it's peak season. You hear these stories of getting to guest houses and they're full up, and then you don't have anywhere to go, and you're trying to find accommodation, and it can be a bit of a nightmare. And a lot of the time I was the only person in the guest house or there was like one other person there. On the jury section, I think I, I, I checked the logbook at a checkpoint and the last tourist before me was three days ago. The, you know, everyone else around were locals. And the last Brit was like weeks ago. It was like I was the first Brit in a long time for that section. But then the second you get from Luckler, then you've got the main Everest. There was a lot of people. I mean, it was weird, because when you're in Namche, which is like the kind of last really big village before you start going up uh, towards base camp, and they have sort of everything there from bakeries to like whatever food you want, pizza, and, and they've got shops and you get supplies and hiking stuff and like you, all sorts. There's an ATM there, there's like a post office. Like it's a fully functional little village. There was quite a few people there, but it was almost felt like a ghost town because so many places were closed. But you see pictures of this place in peak season and it's like it's like a city, it's full of people. So, yeah, it was nice. I, I quite liked not having the saturation of the tourists. But at the same time, obviously, a lot of these places are very different and, uh, when, the, when the tourists are there. The one thing I kind of missed was that you didn't get to see the people who were actually going for Everest. I think there's something very inspiring about the people who are actually going to do Everest and the mindset they'll be in at that moment when they're hiking towards base camp and to be able to like hike alongside someone and chat to them as they're on the way to Everest. That's something I missed out on, uh, which I would have enjoyed. So that, that I think that was probably one of the only things that bothered me about doing it in off-peak. But the kind of sense of how quiet it was was great especially when you're in the mountain you know there, there was sometimes where there was like hours would go by and I wouldn't see a single person at all not even a local as we learned earlier Andy found the first seven days the most challenging especially in the monsoon rain day after day he wore damp clothes and carried around his soggy backpack he felt demotivated leaving the lodge each morning walking into heavy downpours being constantly cold wet and tired was exhausting but that wasn't the only thing that was bothering him. The leeches, they just, ah, they would get around your ankles and up your legs and you, in your, uh, under your t-shirt and you, you just wouldn't know they're there. I mean, they're completely harmless, but obviously there's just something about a creature that's sucking your blood. Yeah, the leeches did bother me a bit, but I got used to them. I got used to them quite quickly. The key was to just not stop. The second you stop, they just latch on and find their way. 
Um, but if you just keep moving and, and be careful where you stop as well. You know, you could see them as you're hiking sometimes, just waiting for someone to come past. Another thing Andy was very aware of was altitude sickness and doing hikes purely to acclimatise himself. He planned his acclimatisation hikes meticulously and this was because when he climbed Kilimanjaro, he was hit pretty badly with altitude sickness. But sometimes, no matter how well you plan something, things can go wrong. So yeah, I, I planned a lot of these acclimatisation days where I camped somewhere, hiked up high and then came and camped low. And I got to this village in Dingboshi and the whole village was shut down for pe off peak season. It's like not a single lodge was open. So there was, you know, 80 lodges and not a single one was open. I literally, I looked around every single lodge and there was no sign of life. So then I was like, well, what, what do I do? I have to decide, do I hike back? Do I hike to the next place? And in the moment, I decided to hike up an extra 200 metres, I think it was, to the next place, which I think was called Periche. And I was already having a bit of a headache at that altitude. And then to go up an extra 200 metres on that day uh, really, really hit me. So I had a day where I decided oh, I'm not going to hike today. I'm just going to stay in this, uh, in this lodge and rest it out. And I had a day of really bad sort of uh, altitude effects where horrible, horrible migraine and felt really dizzy. And But it was the research and being on Kilimanjaro and stuff that told me to just stay there, don't hike any higher, rest it out, eat, drink, do all those things and then see what you're like in the morning. And then I woke up the next day, I was fine. But that was a really hard day because it was like, it was exactly what I didn't want. I was like, oh no, not the altitude. Because I was still quite a bit away from base camp, so I still had quite a bit to go. Yeah, and then I had a similar experience near base camp in the last the last lodge before base camp at a place called Gorak Shep. I just felt horrible in that whole place. I couldn't sleep, I couldn't breathe properly. And I had to yeah, that was the kind of that was where you go to do base camp, so you have to stay there. Yeah, but I think it was also the fact that because I was on my own, you know, if you get if the altitude comes and, and you know, and you're not a hiker or you're not that experienced in this stuff. It can be scary because you don't know you don't know what the necessarily the right thing to do is, so you just have to make a decision. So monsoon rain, leeches, altitude sickness, landslides, challenging hikes, and no one around. Well, I wanted to know what made it all worth it. You see, if you do if you do have a space camp in peak season, Lots of clear skies and there's certain moments throughout the hike before base camp where you can actually see Everest. I didn't have that luxury because it was clouded over mm -hmm. most of the time. So the first time I actually saw Everest was when I got to base camp. So like it was like I worked all these days. Yeah, I worked all these days to get to base camp. And at the same time I saw Everest for the first time. So it was this moment of like, double, yeah, double whammy of, of arriving to the destination which was base camp. And then also seeing Everest which I hadn't yet seen. At the same time, it was like, wow. But yeah, it just brought me back to Kilimanjaro of the, the moment you kind of touch that peak and you get to that sign and all that hard work and pain and you're finally there. And yeah, the same with, with Everest, it was like uh, just to be at base camp, to understand where you are right now and how, how iconic Everest is, you know, and to see it in front of you. Yeah, it was great. And because it took me so long because I added on an extra week as well, you know, I really had to wait to see it. Andy had more than one good memory of his trip. He had many. A lot of them included acts of kindness from locals and other hikers, but one story stood out in particular. One section I was sat down taking a rest and I heard a hello from behind me and I turned around and there was this monk standing over me. Great big grey beard, looked pretty old, I'd say about 60, probably older actually. 
he didn't speak any English and he kind of communicated without language as to where I was heading and we were heading in the same way and it turned out we were heading to the same place for the next three days he stayed in the same lodge with me he always sorted out like I get the lodge for free or get it at the cheapest price he always bought me lunch and tea and food non-stop he gave me his food there was one moment where we were sat just about to go up quite a steep section and he just pulls out this big circle loaf of like it was like sweet apple moist bread and he cut the whole thing in half and he gave me half of it and I really tried to refuse it because I was like no no like that's just give me a piece or something and he was adamant I take the whole half and we sat there and we ate half each and you know that was so memorable and and, and almost dreamlike because there were times when and he, he was always setting the pace he was like 60 but he was always miles ahead of me but he'd always wait for me he'd always turn around and he was very much you know like my companion for those three days and uh, yeah there were times where I was just staring ahead and there's a monk with like a big hiking stick in front of me with a big grey beard and we're in the Himalayan mountains and I'm hiking with a monk and it's just me and him and it was bizarre but it was just like such an act of generosity. Just before we left, we had to part. He showed me this video of a, of a ladybird on its back, struggling. And then uh, these five other ladybirds come along and collectively pick the ladybird up onto its legs. And he didn't, he literally knew hardly any English. And this was as much as I got from him. And he pointed at the ladybird on its back and he said, you. And then he pointed to the five ladybirds picking and helping up the other ladybird and he said, me. <laughs> and that was pretty much how we parted. After Andy descended from base camp, he decided to fly back to Kathmandu from Lukla Airport. To fly from this airport, the conditions have to be just right. Sometimes there are delays for days. This is understandable due to it being the highest airport in the world. In fact, it's even nicknamed the most dangerous. Andy was ahead of schedule, had no prearranged ticket, and so was expecting to have to wait for a while until he could return to the capital city. However, the clouds cleared and he got a flight in no time at all. I'm really glad I chose to hike in and fly out because it was a really nice closure. You know, I, I don't know, there's something for me that you're flying in and you're flying in at like 3,000 metres already. It's just, I wanted a more pure, harder experience than that. But to actually like fly out and kind of you know, see the place that had been your home for the last few weeks and see the mountains one last time and all that stuff. It was, it was amazing. Andy found himself a bit dazed when he landed. Within just a 30-minute flight, he had gone from the Himalayan mountain range to the chaotic and crowded streets of Kathmandu. He got into a taxi, went for breakfast and sat watching all the traffic go by. Although he was going to miss the mountains, he was also glad to be getting back to normality. Although, it wasn't easy at first. It took me a long time before I actually turned my phone on, because I didn't access any Wi-Fi or use my phone at all when I was out there. And then, like, you know, turning that phone felt alien in my hand, and turning my phone on, and messages coming through, and Facebook, and all those things, it was, it was weird, it was very weird. Once Andy had turned on his phone, he was able to reach out to family and friends to tell them about his successful solo climb. Before Andy embarked on his trip, he faced negativity from those around him. Some saw his challenge as too dangerous and unachievable. Andy was determined and passionate about his goals, and once he gets an idea in his mind, he loves to follow through with it. 
Andy feels any dreams are achievable. You just have to not bet the negativity. Focus on your goal. Believe in yourself. Take small steps until one day you have achieved what you have been working towards.